Uh, the other week I had a phone call. It was from a bloke from Tasmania who was very concerned. Uh, he'd had a dream, which he took as a message from God. He'd mixed in some astrology, as well as a unique way of putting together bits of the Bible, and he had a message. Uh, his message was, nuclear war is coming very soon. In the next two years, and after the nuclear war, Jesus is going to return. He was very serious. His message was, churches in Gympie, get ready. For the next two or two, one or two years, churches need to create communes and gardens so when the bombs start falling, Christians can find refuge in places like Gympie. Needless to say, we are not going to listen to this bloke. We're not going to do what he said. Uh, for the last 2,000 years, some people have become obsessed. Not obsessed by the return of Jesus. It is good to live in the light of Jesus' return but they've been obsessed with making claims of when Jesus will return. They believe they've finally cracked the code, worked out the secret message of the Bible that no one else has been able to see. And the people making these claims, they've all been wrong, but they've had the effect of unsettling believers, creating anxiety and worry. I wonder if the bloke on the phone has done that for some people. I wonder if even hearing his message may have done that for you then, even briefly. People have been unsettled, have become anxious and worried. And so for for 2,000 years, Christians have had to go back to the Bible, which unlike these breathless, anxiety-inducing forecasters and predictors, the Bible is focused on encouraging believers, encouraging us with the truth, that Jesus will return and telling us to stand firm, keeping our eyes and hearts fixed on him and to live boldly for him. This unsettling of believers with false teaching, false predictions, it goes right back. It was happening within decades of Jesus' death and resurrection. It happened to the believers in Thessalonica. Uh, We're looking at 2 Thessalonians 2 today, and I have to admit, it is a difficult part of the Bible to understand. It's difficult not because of what it does say, but because of what it actually doesn't say, for the gaps in our knowledge. We're going to see in a moment, but right now, jump down to verse 5, so chapter 2, verse 5, and it says, don't you remember, this is Paul writing to the, the believers in Thessalonica, the church there, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. Well, Paul might have told the Thessalonians some things, but he doesn't tell them to us. In this chapter, Paul's dealing with false teaching. It's false teaching which has twisted something that he told them in person, but he doesn't go back and cover too much old ground. He just fills in the gaps to refute the false teaching and to encourage and comfort the believers. But this means there are a few details we don't know. There are questions this passage raises we can't answer. And it would be a waste of our time to focus on the things we don't know. Our job today is to listen to what God has said, trusting he says everything we need to know for life and godliness. What we're doing is summed up in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I put it up on the screen. In the first chapter of the confession, it says, the meanings of all the passages in the Bible are not equally obvious nor is any individual passage equally clear to everyone. 
However, this is the good news, however, everything which we have to know, believe and observe in order to be saved is so clearly presented and revealed somewhere in the Bible that the uneducated as well as the educated can sufficiently understand it by the proper use of the ordinary means of grace. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 is one of these not equally obvious, not equally clear passages and this raises challenges for us but take heart because the point of the chapter is to encourage and build you and me believers up to give us courage and confidence in Jesus and that's the opposite of what the false teachers, the false teaching about the return of Jesus does. So have a listen, with that as our kind of preamble, have a listen to verse 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth, or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. What is the day of the Lord? It's a common term from the Old Testament prophets. It refers to two connected ideas. It can be used to talk about a moment in history, a moment of God's judgment. So, for example, Isaiah speaks about the day of the Lord. He's talking about the collapse of the Babylonian Empire, God's judgment on them for their wickedness. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Uh, That occurred in history a couple of thousand years ago. So the day of the Lord can be God's judgment in history. It can also refer to God's judgment at the end of history, the great final day of judgment. And these two things are connected. The day of the Lord in history is a foretaste of the final day of the Lord. There's one other thing to take on board. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, the day of the Lord, the ultimate final day of the Lord, has broken into history. Because on the cross, Jesus atones for the full punishment for his people's sin. And in his resurrection and ascension and by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the new age, the new creation breaks into history. And so the day of the Lord becomes a little bit more complex. It's now. We are in the day of the Lord because Jesus has died and risen again. It's now because the Holy Spirit has been poured out on believers But it's not yet, because Jesus has not yet returned to make all things new. The day of the Lord is now and not yet. We live in the overlap of the ages. But the false teaching that had had taken hold in Thessalonica said, the day of the Lord is now. And by day of the Lord, well, this is a bit tricky to work out. It might mean They're talking about God's judgment in history. Some people think this passage is about Jerusalem being destroyed, which happened in 70 AD, a few decades after this letter was written. And so the false teaching might be, get ready because that day is about to come. And then it's actually not false teaching because it does come, but the false teaching would be the way that they were making people anxious. I'm not convinced by that reading of the chapter. I reckon it is talking about the return of Jesus 
Uh, the same event we heard about in chapter 1, verse 7, the day Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. Though, we've got to admit, we aren't told what the false teaching is. We aren't told why the Thessalonians had bought the lie and become unsettled, but that's okay because our focus is on what God has said. And what God has said, and what God says, and, and how Paul refutes the false teaching, I reckon as you read, you've got to scratch your head, you go, this is a strange way of refuting false teaching about the, the day of the Lord. You'd think the simple way, if someone comes up to you and goes, look, the day of the Lord's happened, you go, well, when Jesus returns, he's going to make all things new and we're going to see him face to face. Jesus will destroy his enemies. There's going to be no more suffering and pain. Uh, have you ever looked around? It's pretty obvious that there's suffering, pain, Jesus' enemies are still continuing. I haven't seen Jesus face to face. It should be very easy to refute this false teaching. That's not what Paul does, though, is it? Instead, he teaches them about this man of lawlessness, which at first seems strange, but what he's doing is he's setting their expectations straight. He teaches them about the, this man of lawlessness so that they and we, we can know what it's like to live in the now and not yet. In the overlap of the ages, two things are true. One is that God's kingdom will grow. We can expect God to answer our prayers and fulfill our desires for goodness and works of faith, that prayer that we heard at the end of chapter 1. That is true because Jesus is risen and reigning and, number two, at the same time, suffering and persecution will continue in the overlap of the ages. It's going to be good to follow Jesus and it'll be hard to follow Jesus because the forces of lawlessness continue to be at work. And that's what it says from verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. Uh, there are two negative events Paul tells believers to expect to happen before Jesus returns. Uh, one is a rebellion or a falling away. Uh, this could be a political rebellion, anarchy, protests, riots, coups, revolution, people overthrowing legitimate government, which Romans 13 tells us is appointed by God. It could also be some kind of religious falling away, false teaching, widely infecting churches or something like that. We're not really given much about the rebellion. The second thing to expect is the revelation of the man of lawless one, uh, man of lawlessness. This lawless one, he is described using Old Testament picture language. He sounds like the great historical enemies of God's people. He sounds like Pharaoh, we're reading Exodus as well at the moment, aren't we? He sounds like Pharaoh or the king of Babylon. Uh, sounds like some of the language we read in Daniel and Ezekiel. Uh, the picture also, so it sounds like people we meet in the scriptures, historical people from the scriptures, Pharaoh, king of Babylon. It also sounds like some people who came 
after the end of the Old Testament and into the New Testament kind of period that aren't specifically uh, described historically in the Bible. They, they sound like people that, though, that the, the, the believers in Thessalonica, Thessalonica uh, would have known about. What does this man of lawlessness do? He claims to be God. He tries to replace God in the temple, like Pharaoh, like the king of Babylon. Uh, for the Thessalonians, it would have also brought to mind three ancient enemies of God's people. It sounds like the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes IV. His name means appearance of God. In about 167 BC, he put an altar to Zeus in the Jerusalem temple. He sacrificed a pig in the temple. Think Jewish people, what are pigs? You don't want pigs anywhere near your temple, let alone their blood slashed everywhere. The man of lawlessness kind of does the same things, doesn't he? He also sounds like the Roman general Pompey. In 63 BC, he marched into the Jerusalem temple where no Gentile is allowed to go. He doesn't even just go into the temple. He goes into the Holy of Holies, the place that only the high priest is allowed to enter. And only on one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, but this pagan general walks in and then proclaims there's no God there. In more recent history... The Emperor Caligula was planning to put his own image, a statue of himself, in the Jerusalem temple. He died before that happened, but it left a lasting impression on Jews and Christians. So we've got this biblical and historical background. All of it helps us understand the the word picture Paul is painting in this chapter. Uh, The picture of the man of lawlessness makes us think of this long, long line of lawless ones. And Paul's point, this is going to continue. Yes, Jesus is risen and reigning, but all of this is going to continue until Jesus returns and maybe even get worse. Verse 6, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. For the past 2,000 years, some Christians have tried to guess whether certain people are this man of lawlessness. It seems to be a human trait that we overestimate our own importance. We think that our suffering is worse than anything that's happened before, that the kings and rulers of our day are worse than any that have come before, that the wider culture is worse than before, so this must be the rebellion and they must be the man of lawlessness. And so people have read this passage and gone, I know who the man of lawlessness is, it's someone today, because I'm here. It must be Muhammad. Or Mary, Queen of Scots, it's Hitler, Stalin or Gorbachev, it's Obama or Trump, Putin or Kim Jong-un, 
It's one of the popes of the Roman church or the papacy as a whole. For 2,000 years, some people have thought this and been wrong. On one level, it's because we don't know history. We have an overblown sense of our own place in history. Surely we're the ones. We're seeing what Paul has described. It also misunderstands what Paul calls the secret or the mystery of lawlessness. On one level, lawlessness, believing you are God, exalting yourself in the place of God, it's true, it's right. We should see this in all of those people I just mentioned and more, all kinds of people in power and authority. The Bible says, and it's right, isn't it, the secret of lawlessness is at work in the powers and authorities of history and today. But more than that, it's not just in those people up the top, it's actually in work in everyone Lawlessness is the heart of sin, wanting to be like God, to take and determine for ourselves good and evil. It is right that we see the secret of lawlessness at work today. It's what 2 Thessalonians 2 says we should expect to see. But trying to peek behind the curtain, getting obsessed with cracking the code and working out if a certain person is some kind of ultimate man of lawlessness, it's a waste of time. It's a dangerous waste of time. It's dangerous because it takes our eyes off Jesus. The point of this passage is not to make us look for lawlessness, but to look to Jesus. The point is to give us the right expectation Yes, Jesus is risen and reigning. Yes, he pours out his Holy Spirit. And this means we should pray for our gospel ambitions to be fulfilled. But at the same time, the secret of lawlessness is at work. Without Jesus, people are dead in sin. People will believe lies. Sinners will be against God and his people and they'll live as if they are God. They'll have hard hearts. The secret of lawlessness will be at work and some people have more power to hurt others with that. Before moving on, uh, verses 11 and 12 raise another big question. It raises the big question about God's sovereignty in salvation. Uh, We really don't have time to get into that now. It's something for us to discuss over lunch. Uh, The only thing I'm going to point out is, have a look. Uh, Verses 11 and 12 talk about God's sovereignty in judgment. Just as verse 13 talks about God's sovereignty in salvation. The only reason anyone isn't deceived, it's not because you are smarter or more open to God, more spiritual or religious. The only reason, verse 13, is God's gracious choice. But I've just opened up a big can of worms. We can deal with that one over lunch because I want us to focus on the main thing which is to have our expectations for this life, uh, sorry, for life in this age, living in the now and not yet as we wait for Jesus' return, for us to be gathered together as God's people in the new creation. That's what verse 1 talks about. Our expectation, until Jesus returns, the gospel will go forward and grow and the secret of lawlessness will be at work. And Paul says that at some point the rebellion will occur, the man of lawlessness will be revealed, lawlessness personified, people will be deceived, and this is the most important thing, this is the number one thing for you to hear. If you get nothing else from this passage, look at verse 8. The very moment, no sooner than the lawless one steps onto the scene, but Jesus shows up and effortlessly destroys him. 
Listen again to verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. People get worked up, they get worried and anxious that maybe the man of lawlessness is about to be revealed, but not Jesus. Jesus snuffs him out, blows him out like a candle on a birthday cake. Some people have this wrong idea that history is an epic struggle between good and evil, and that's why Jesus hasn't returned yet. In the 90s, there was a popular Christian novel by a bloke named Frank Peretti. It was called This Present Darkness. I've read it, so you don't have to. It's terrible. It's a bad novel, and the theology is bad. But the message of this book is what too many people believe. The point of this book was history is a struggle and God will lose if Christians don't pray. If Christians aren't praying, the lawless one will win. That's a lie. The truth is Jesus will blow out evil as you blow out a candle. And so the encouragement is, brothers and sisters, have right expectations. And so stand firm, trusting in Jesus. Verse 13 But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. How good is that? Loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, this is all good, isn't it? The sharing in God's glory, in Christ's glory. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teaching we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. The big problem of people like the bloke who phoned me is they take their eyes off Jesus. They're so obsessed with identifying the man of lawlessness, trying to work out if they can detect the beginnings of the rebellion, how they get breathless and anxious about these things, and it makes others anxious and worried too. I reckon a simple way to work out if someone is teaching you God's truth or if they're misleading and deceiving you is, does their message make you anxious and worried? The Bible is written to encourage believers. The gospel gives us confidence and strengthen us in good deeds and words. And so if they're making you anxious, it's probably not the truth. Now, don't get me wrong. If you are not trusting in Jesus, God's word should get your attention. To come face to face with Jesus, to see his coming with blazing fire is terrifying if you're not relying on Jesus alone for salvation, if you're not united to him by faith, if you're not clothed with his righteousness and holiness, you should be concerned, dreadfully concerned. But the day of the Lord is not a scary thing for a believer. Tremendous, awesome in the true meaning of the word, filling our hearts with awe, but not something to make us anxious or worried The lawless one will be just blown out like a candle. We should not be anxious or worried because in the gospel, God has given his people eternal encouragement and hope. Not because of anything we've done, but what Jesus has done. 
So let's encourage each other to stand firm, to keep our hearts and our minds fixed on Jesus, to not be distracted or deceived by last day obsessed people. Let's be Jesus obsessed, gospel obsessed people as we live boldly for Jesus until he returns. Let's pray.